This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. After a week of political drama and impasse following GE15, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim was sworn in as Malaysia's 10th Prime Minister last Thursday, leading a coalition government um, led by Pakatan Harapan together with Barisan National, Warisan, Gabungan Rakyat Sabah and Gabungan Parti Sarawak as partners. But as we wait for the new cabinet to be unveiled, what should be on the human rights agenda for the new government? Will we see significant reforms being pushed through? So joining me on the show today to share her thoughts and wish list on this is Katrina Jareen Malyamau, the Executive Director for Amnesty International Malaysia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katrina. Hi, Suan. Thank you for having me. So I want to start by looking back for a bit, Katrina. You know, since the last GE, it's been about four plus years since then. How much would you say has the needle moved for Malaysia when it comes to pushing the human rights agenda? Have we progressed or regressed? I think maybe we need to start by like taking a collective breath, (laughs) slowly exhaling. Um, I think the human rights situation in Malaysia uh, is precarious. You know, over the past few years, the country has suffered from deep political instability and human rights has declined as a result. We have seen an erosion of trust in our leaders, uh, in good governance, in anti-corruption and on the whole in respect for human rights. Um, So there is a lot to mend in the country. People are hurting from very painful economic struggles, uh, from COVID and all the grief and losses around that. We are experiencing deep divisions amongst Malaysian society. So there is a lot that needs to be repaired and tended to. Um, But, you know, while state repression and disrespect for human rights has increased, I don't want to diminish the work people in Malaysia have done Mm -hmm. to defend and claim human rights. So despite the shrinking of our civic space, despite the restrictions and fears and anxieties, Malaysians have come out to defend their rights, whether it's the Lawan protests or the Bandera Puteh movement or Kita Jaga Kita or the outrage over police violence and custodial deaths or the anti-death penalty vigils and solidarity expressions. Uh, And also the very significant percentage of people who've come out to vote. I think we are seeing people claim their rights, demand their rights, uh, and, and we must applaud that too. And what are some of the, I guess, human rights issues that have emerged during this time in the past four years or so that you think should be addressed? So I don't want to provide a ranking because mm-hmm. when we speak about fundamental human rights, a core principle of that is that rights are interconnected to each other and we have to look at it from an intersectional lens, right? Mm-hmm. So the issues are connected. Um, but I can speak from the work that we do at Amnesty Malaysia from our assessments. We've looked at key, eight key areas mm-hmm. that this new government should prioritize. Uh, And we are focusing on rights such as freedom of expression, uh, which are so pivotal when claiming and promoting all rights. We're also looking at addressing the rights of communities who have been the most marginalized, such as indigenous peoples uh, and migrants and refugees. And so with that, we can sort of run through our eight point agenda for the new government. Mm-hmm. Mm. So let's do that, right? Dive right in. Um, you know, you've um, I, w- I had a look at your eight point human rights agenda. I, I saw the first two, I guess, as somewhat related. Your, um, your first point was to respect and protect freedom of expression. And number two is to ensure freedom of peace peaceful assembly. Why are these two at the top of your list, especially in a maturing democracy like Malaysia? 
So the, the right to freedom of expression and, and association with assembly is, is absolutely essential and it is interrelated to the realization and exercise of all our fundamental human rights. And I think if we take a step back and we just think about this a little, right? So mm -hmm. when we talk about expression, expression is how we communicate with the world. It's how we learn about each other and ourselves. Expression is about knowledge. It's about discovery. It's how we grieve, heal. It's also how we seek justice and how we create the world that we want. Um, and yet we've seen an alarming number of people, journalists, activists, artists, ordinary citizens, uh, investigated and arrested for the expression. Mm -hmm. We've seen people harassed and questioned for participating in peaceful protests, for even holding candlelight vigils to mourn COVID deaths. Um, according to the government, you know, at least 692 people were investigated under the Communications and Multimedia Act from 2020 to the middle of uh, this year. Um, in June of this year, also, the police blocked lawyers from marching to parliament to protest against interference in the judiciary. Um, and, and the organizers were later investigated by the police. And these are only some examples. So I think if you can look at that, you can see how, you know, if you take away our right to, um, to protest, if you take away our right to express ourselves, then you're going to diminish the claiming of rights, the naming of harms, the seeking of justice. For years, we've been calling for the repeal of the Sedition Act, mm -hmm. the Printing Presses and Publications Act, Section 233 of the Communications and Multimedia Act, the Film Censorship Act. Uh, Pakatan Harapan in the past has also committed to repealing these restrictive laws, and it's so imperative that they do so now. You know, when censorship silences us, I think it, it, it holds us back, makes us scared of ideas and people who are different from us, and it prevents understanding of uh, each other. And I think especially right now when we are seeing um, really deep divisions in Malaysian society, what we need is a space to be able to express ourselves um, in, in, in peaceful, meaningful ways, to be able to ask questions and to be able to also uh, hold our leaders accountable. Um, I also want to note that we have seen an alarming rise in hate speech online. Mm -hmm. And here, states and corporations, especially social media companies, uh, have a role to play in addressing the root causes of hate speech and dealing with hate speech that incites discrimination and violence. And, and not, for example, arresting the whistleblowers. So we saw, for example, um, Social media user Bumi Langit or Zulfadzli Halim, who was arrested and held for a couple of days for highlighting the hateful content we are seeing. Mm -hmm. Those are not the interventions that are needed. Deal with the hate speech, not the people talking about the hate speech. Hmm. Now, moving on to your third area um, that was highlighted by Amnesty International Malaysia, that's the abolishment of the death penalty. Now, I know that's something that's very close to um, Amnesty International's heart. You know, most recently, just a few months ago, um, the former law minister, Datuk Sri Dr. Wan Junaidi, said that the government had agreed to replace the mandatory death penalty, but nothing has been done just yet. What do you want to see from the new government on this aspect? So I think it's it's great that the commitment was made to abolish the mandatory death penalty, uh, but we're calling for the full abolition of the death penalty mm -hmm. and an individual review of cases uh, of people on death row. And I think this is a 
I strongly believe it's an achievable goal. Malaysia can absolutely join the majority of countries in stopping this barbaric practice. Um, and I want to reiterate that we, and I'm sure civil society in Malaysia and also globally, uh, extend our support to the government to make this happen. You know, the death penalty, uh, as more and more Malaysians are coming to see and understand, is the death penalty is torture. And it's not just torture for the people who the state is killing, mm -hmm. but for their families. Uh, and this long wait, the state of limbo that people are in, people have been on death row for more than a decade. It is excruciating agony. So we cannot keep delaying this action. Pakatan Harapan, uh, when they were in power previously in 2019, made great strides. There's been movement this year, um, and we need to build on it. And so we're calling for a moratorium still on executions, but you know, immediate actions taken to abolish the death penalty in its totality. Mm. And speaking of what um, Pakatan Harapan committed previously, you know, that relates to the fourth area that um, Amnesty International Malaysia brought up as well, which is the um, which is addressing police brutality and abuse of power, the need for better mechanisms to hold law enforcement accountable. You know, Pakatan Harapan back then um, had initially pushed the IPCMC bill, which was then later replaced with the IPCC bill um, post Lanka Sheraton. Are you hopeful then that currently, you know, with this government that we have, we will see a return of the IPCMC, which is said to be stronger than the IPCC? So I think we have to insist for it. And we as people in Malaysia must insist for it. So this is not just an NGO we. Uh, the IPCC bill, which is at the Senate now, it has to be retracted. Mm -hmm. It was a truly atrocious bill, uh, widely criticized. Um, it is kind of shocking that they put forward a bill that was so much weaker than the existing mechanisms, which were already so ineffective. And the IPCC bill just completely failed to address you know, very widespread public concerns about police misconduct, about the ongoing misuse of power against government critiques, and certainly about custodial debts. I mean, just this year, we've seen at least 20 debts in police custody, yet there's not been any transparent investigations. No one was brought to justice. At the end of last year, you know, the police, I, I assume, responding to public outrage about the number of debts, um, established a police unit to investigate debts in custody. But the work around it is opaque, right? So the police now have got into a pattern where they say they are investigating the debts in custody, but the investigations have not been made public. And so we're seeing, again, you know, this pattern where police announce and confirm a death. Mm -hmm. There's no um, uh, transparency uh, and transparency here means not just telling us someone died, but it requires an openness and clarity on the process, on investigations, on outcomes and repercussions. You know, it's been almost two decades since the Royal Commission of Inquiry called for a strong, independent and transparent body to not just oversee the police, but also to address the structural harms that have led to police violence. And so I'm calling on the Pakatan Harapan government, you know, you've previously committed to a robust IPCMC. This has to be a priority of the new administration. Would the introduction of an IPCMC automatically address all these issues? 
I think that an IPCMC, so an oversight commission that is meant to investigate uh, ensure people are brought to justice, that is important. But I also think that when we talk about robust, it's about addressing the culture mm -hmm. that has allowed sort of this violence, violence by the state uh, to facilitate, to be facilitated and to be fostered. And, and that's a cultural shift. It's an attitudinal shift too. Um, and th this is decades worth of rot that we need to deal with, but that commitment has to be there. And so, you know, later we will speak to, um, I, I guess, oh, I'd like to raise the points around um, how we, we have to have a strong human rights commission. Um, all of these facets have to be in place. There has to be, again, the protection of freedom of expression to allow for greater scrutiny, to allow for people to name the harms. So an IPCMC alone cannot be um, thought of as the only thing that will deal with structural state violence but it is a very important piece uh, that is required if we're trying to change this landscape of harm and violence. Mm. It's all interconnected, but we need that commitment, don't we? Absolutely. And again, a commitment for something that is robust and well-resourced. And, you know, again, we're not starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. 16 or 17 years ago, the Royal Commission put out several hundred pages uh, of, uh, of insight and analysis that we can refer to. There have been commissions and uh, interventions set up uh, around the world, which I know um, people in government have gone and visited other commissions and learned from it. So we don't have to begin from scratch. The tools and the information is there. What we need is a real political commitment. And that is really what we should expect from this administration. Hmm. All right, we'll go for a quick break now, Katrina, and continue our discussion on, a hum on, on this, on what a human rights agenda should look like for the new government. I'm speaking today to Katrina Jorin Maliamau, Executive Director of Amnesty International Malaysia. We'll be right back on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Suan. On the show with me today is the Executive Director of Amnesty International Malaysia, Katrina Jorin Maliamau, and we are discussing um, their wish list, you know, for the human rights agenda for the new government. Um, before the break, we were talking a little bit, we were looking back a little bit about um, what progress as, uh, that we've made in the past four years, as well as the places where we've regressed as well. Um, we've touched on the first few points on Amnesty International International Malaysia's um, eight-point wish list for the new government, uh, number one being freedom of expression, number two, freedom of peaceful assembly, um, the third is the abolishment of the death penalty, and the fourth is the a, re a return of the IPCMC instead of the IPCC. Now, Katrina, I want to move on to the fifth point, which is interesting because it touches on the rising xenophobia that we've seen towards refugees and migrants, um, especially since the start of the pandemic, right? We want better protection for their rights. But how much work would the government need to do, not just to improve how we treat mi migrants, but changing public perception? Because that has really fueled how we've treated them as well, right? Absolutely. We have seen a real fostering of hate speech. And I use that word quite deliberately, right? So it's not just that hate speech just happens organically. Mm -hmm. It has been um, actively, I think, in many ways encouraged from some of the posts that were saw on social media, for example, or the inaction when you see um, um, increased sort of discriminatory comments or even signs that are put up against migrants and refugees. So we've seen that fostering of hate speech. We've seen surveillance and policing and harassment of refugees and migrants. Um, 
And and so the government, you know, when we think about the role of government, it's not just to protect human rights, but to actively promote the protection of human rights. And so this administration has to work to repair the harm from hateful, racist, xenophobic rhetoric and practices and cultures that have taken root in Malaysia. And they must do this, not just, like you said, in the policies and the, that they are passing uh, or that they are um, fulfilling, but also in the way they talk about migrants and refugees. You know, this notion that all people within our country have fundamental rights that must be protected, that needs to be reiterated by people in government. People in government have to say that when we talk about who deserves dignity, who deserves basic rights. Um, the responsibility for the state is everybody within their geographical boundaries. So refugees and migrants are asking to be treated as people, people with dignity and rights. And if we truly want a Malaysian society that um, is making reforms and strides towards um, um, one that, that respects human rights, mm -hmm. then we cannot look at migrants and refugees asking to be treated with dignity and rights as a tall order. But there also has to be uh, active practices that must stop. So we have to stop the criminalization of migrants. We have to stop the arrests and detention of refugees and migrants. We have to stop the deportations of refugees and asylum seekers. There must be a commitment to ensure that migrant refugee workers have dignified, decent work. Um, and again, perhaps even selfishly, if you think about protection of workers' um, rights, of labor's, labor rights for all people, um, and in, you include migrants and refugees, that also uplifts all of us, all workers in Malaysia. Um, and so again, you know, reforms have to include the protection of rights for all people. We cannot, as a people in Malaysia, as people in Malaysia, accept the degradation of anyone's lives, uh, dignity and rights. I also want to make a point just uh, quickly on foreign policy, because we are in this time where you know, the Malaysian government um, has rightfully in the past criticized the, the Myanmar military um, and, and really tried to take leadership in ASEAN to address the conflict in Myanmar. And we absolutely must see a continuation of that mm -hmm. uh, under this administration. But at the same time, the previous administration, while saying this, was also deporting people back to Myanmar and also detaining refugees from Myanmar indefinitely. So this practice has to stop uh, uh, immediately. So we cannot, you know, try and say we are, we are being leaders in ASEAN uh, while at the same time uh, putting people at risk. Mm. And along the same vein of protecting um, the rights of the uh, of marginalized communities, your next point is on protecting the rights of LGBTI individuals. Now, this is a particularly tricky one in Malaysian society, isn't it? I think you know when. Prime Minister Anwar was giving his press conference after taking an oath to fulfill his duty as Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he said that was met with loud applause was his commitment that no one will be marginalised under his administration. No one will be marginalised. Mm -hmm. That has to extend to people of all races, of all religions, of all forms of ability and dis disability. It has to mean people who come from different economic backgrounds, different age groups, and it has to mean people of different genders and sexualities. So when we, if we say no one will be marginalized, that demands that we look particularly at people who've been actively disenfranchised 
actively harmed and pushed to the margins. And we must ask ourselves, what are the policies, practices, cultures, norms that we have to change in order to stop the marginalization? LGBTQ people in Malaysia have been vilified, discriminated, threatened, and harassed. LGBTQ folks in Malaysia have been used by all sides as scapegoats and to score political points. And this current administration, if it is truly committed, committed to ending the marginalization of people, it has to end this practice. Mm -hmm. You have to stop violating the rights of LGBT people through arbitrary arrests, through detention, through violence, through ill treatment, through violations of privacy and discrimination. LGBT folks in Malaysia have a right to live without fear, have a right to live with dignity. Mm. LGBT people are not a threat to this country. Hatefulness, discrimination, corruption, bad governance, and the denial of our fundamental rights, those are the threats that need to be addressed. Mm. At the very basics, um, it's really down to the principle of non-discrimination, isn't it? It really is. It is honestly not complicated. And if we make a commitment to not discriminate people, um, to not uh, violate people's privacy, to not you know, uh, perpetuate norms of violence and harm, that extends to creating and fostering a climate that uplifts everybody's dignity. And it's been, you know, this is this the use again of the scapegoating as a way to inflict fear, to create divide uh, and to score political points. That must stop. Uh, and I think it also distracts from it doesn't just harm people, which in and of itself is horrible, but it also distracts from the issues that ought to be worked on, um, that the issues that are really harming us as a people. Mm -hmm. Mm. And still along the same vein of uh, marginalised communities, and you brought up the rights of Indigenous peoples um, earlier in our conversation. Now, this is this is not new, right? Indigenous um, the rights of Indigenous people have often been pushed aside or very cursorily addressed. You know, despite Orang Asli communities being very very deeply affected by development policies um, across Malaysia. What reforms do we need so that we better protect the rights of Indigenous peoples and so that we are actively listening to the mm -hmm. issues that they are facing? You know, in Indigenous peoples should not be treated as an afterthought or as a separate quote-unquote issue to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how in, in you alluded to in your question. Um, it has been seen as the side thing. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which Malaysia has committed to, gives us a standard for the minimum framework for the survival, dignity and well-being of Indigenous peoples. I think within this, it is imperative that as this government go through the process of reforms, that Indigenous communities and leaders be in the room, that they be consulted, that their perspectives, analysis, recommendations and insight inform the reforms that need to take place. And this should be across the board, not just on issues that we think from the outside are indigenous issues, mm -hmm. because indigenous peoples are also, like everybody else, have a full spectrum of rights that need to be respected um, and bring with them the leadership and analysis that ought to inform uh, whether it's development policies or education policies or gender policies. Um, and so, again, you know, this not treating uh, the communities as a separate, distinct, but being very much involved in the process of reforms. Mm. 
And to round up your eight-point human rights agenda, now I found it interesting that you included ratifying international human rights treaties um, and alongside that to strengthen um, Suhakam. In international human rights treaties don't really have a great track record in Malaysia. Um, we either ratify them with um, significant reservations or we struggle to become a signatory in the first place, right? So why is this included for you? So when we think about human rights treaties, you know, I think they should be thought of as really useful guiding documents that help governments or that should help governments, if they use them, mm-hmm. inform their analysis. They should provide direction for the policies that are needed to address complex issues. Uh, and it should be a pathway to protecting the human rights of all people in the country. You know, they're not badges that you win after achieving goals. <laughs> Rather, they are, they are frameworks that are tried and tested around the world, which will help you make the holistic, robust, thoughtful changes that are needed. So if this government says, and it has said that it's committed to reforms, then we strongly hope that they use the tools from the International Human Rights Committee, that we make a commitment to these standards um, and that we you know, um, resource and support the Human Rights Commission, um, because that is also a, a key part of the system of check and balances that is needed. Um, and so, again, yes, we've had a, a really difficult uh, and, and, and strained uh, history with human rights conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we either don't commit to them we do, or we, we do and then we don't implement them. But I think, again, if we're thinking about reforms, I hope there's a shift in our perspectives that we are not afraid of committing to these standards when actually what do these, these treaties say is that they really flesh out um, how you fulfill the human rights um, commitments at a very basic level. Um, and if we are committed to belonging to an international community, then that also means that we come together mm-hmm. to support the fulfillment of rights and don't shy away from using the tools that are provided for you through the international community. Mm. And where does Suhakam come in? Suhakam as a human rights commission, again, you know, like I said, plays that role of checks and balances, uh, of monitoring, of uh, supporting, uh, again, what I said about the government's uh, duty in promoting uh, human rights. Um, I think, again, with this, the fractures that exist uh, in, in Malaysian society, there needs to be a very active role um, for human rights. Uh, And this means also not just repairing harms, but doing the capacity building, the shifting of perspectives in government agencies. It means um, doing the independent uh, um, investigations into human rights violations. So Akam in the past has put out very strong reports on very serious human rights violations that have Mm -hmm. happened. Um, Those reports need to be tabled in a public way. They need to be debated. And um, SOHACAM needs to be strengthened uh, and respected. And and human rights commissions around the world play that vital role, which I really hope happens uh, in this administration too. 
Mm. You know, Amnesty International Malaysia put out this eight-point agenda before um, GE15, before we had a coalition um, that was formed with this new government. Now, Pakatan Harapan is largely seen as the reformist coalition among the options that we have, but it is also one that has been um, quite highly criticised for not pushing through the reforms that they promised in the 22 months when they were in power after GE14. Do you see an appetite for reforms with a PH-led government? Um, Considering that in their manifesto, they've also included a lot of the areas that, you know, we've been discussing today. Or do you think that, you know, this is like sort of a coalition of coalitions that that will become a barrier in pushing these reforms through? I think that when you when we talk about pushing reforms, I don't want to deny that it is difficult work. Mm-hmm. But I think that starting with a premise of a bold commitment to those reforms, that political will is really what is needed. Um, I think that it is the job of all of us to play an active role in holding this government to account. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we need to ask questions. We need to stay informed. We have to be vigilant. We have to be we have to be engaged in the process. You know, Malaysians came out to vote in huge numbers, and that's powerful. But we have to keep participating in the creation of the world we want. So I think the responsibility is absolutely on the elected representatives uh, and the policymakers, but it's also on all of us to make sure that they don't get caught up in their politicking, they don't get caught up in trying to just hold power, Mm -hmm. but they fulfill um, their commitment and that they uh, protect the rights that we have and that we do not compromise on those fundamental rights. Mm. So I think it's a it's an exciting time for us in Malaysia, um, and we are. But again, you know, it's about us also staying informed, and it's about us not ceding our space and our agency in this process. Mm. Now, we're quite familiar with seeing the pushback from civil society, especially from human rights NGOs, um, in, in pressuring the government to stick to their promises. But for the public specifically, it can be quite difficult for us to conceive what to do, right? So what can we as individuals do to keep the pressure on the government? I think that, you know, it's a learning about what are the rights that we want. It's about staying plugged into the news. It's about having, um, getting connected with each other, doing that that thinking together, mm-hmm. you know, be paying attention to what are the decisions that the government is making or the things that they're not doing. Um, I think sometimes when we speak about human rights, it can feel like a very distant, complex thing. Mm-hmm. But when you sort of break it down, it's human rights needs to be embodied. It needs to be felt. Um at a fundamental level, all of us know what uh, feels good, what feels right, what are the kinds of um, uh, practices in our communities that we want. You know, we we know what it's like when our when when the when the planet, for example, is suffering. We feel the the um, consequences of that, and so I want us to trust that we have knowledge, that we have insight. I want us to trust our um, our feelings as sites of, of um, uh, analysis too. And I want us to understand and, re- and believe that we have agency. And I think, you know, I, I am quite um, in awe sometimes when I think about how despite um, 
how disillusioned many people have felt over the last few years, how um, disconnected or maybe disrespected we have felt from all of the uh, political uh, fighting that has um, happened, um, yet people still have an incredible capacity of hope, even if we don't realize it, and and still came out to say we we will make a choice and participate in this flawed democratic process. And so I think that you know Malaysians may may at times feel like we don't have a role to play, mm-hmm. um, but we do. And and even if we don't realize it, there is still tremendous power. Um, especially when we work together as a collective. Hmm. But there will always be pushback from certain segments of people, right? And we've seen that in the past and that's something that we need to learn from. How do you think policymakers or the government can do better in communicating information when it comes to human rights rights issues to the public to counter any potential misinformation? So making reforms cannot just be about tabling bills in parliament. Mm-hmm. As I've said a few times, and I will say it again because it's really important, part of the role of government is about promoting human rights. That means going down to the ground. It means actively funding human rights programs. It means creating community spaces for learning, for sharing, for conflict resolution. There have to be spaces um, created for people to talk and work through their fears Um, We have to fund programs that bridge divisions that have been created, that repair the harms that have fested. Um, The human rights treaties that I talked about, again, those are helpful frameworks Mm -hmm. for communicating complex human rights issues. They are time-tested, and I hope that the government can lean on them. Um, And also, like I said, the government has to clamp down also on hate speech. And that's a role that social media companies must play too. So here, you know, the... When we speak about um, the protection of rights and, a, and an active, thriving democracy, this you have to bridge the gaps between what happens in, in, in often distant policy spaces while actively involving the populace. And this is also about, you know, going back to the first point on freedom of expression, uh, on people actively engaged in this process of reforms and having the tools and information um, to, um, to guide that participation. Mm. Katrina, for a lot of people, I think, including the new government, the new cabinet, and average Malaysians, human rights issues might not seem to be of particular importance at the moment compared to um, cost of living issues, for example, right? But to wrap up our discussion, you know, why would you say that human rights issues should be prioritised hand in hand with everything else that we're facing as well? So human rights are interrelated, they are indivisible, and they are interconnected. The economy has to work for the people. Human rights need to be felt, they need to be embodied, they need to be experienced. You know, they're not distant ideals. And so when we talk about a human rights lens, what we're saying is that these are perspectives that will ensure that economic policies reach people of all age groups, of all genders, of all races, of all disabilities. It ensures that we have actual, meaningful, sustainable access to the measures that are proposed. So we must stop talking about the economy and economic rights and human rights as mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. If you drop the human rights from the economy, then who is it actually for? 
All right. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Katrina. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been speaking to Katrina Jorin Maliamau, Executive Director of Amnesty International Malaysia, on what a human rights agenda should look like for the new government. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.